You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. Please be seated. Uh, So good to be with you. One of my favorite stops throughout the year. Uh, We were reflecting the other night. I think it's been some 17, 18 years I've had the privilege of coming. And I, I want to commend uh, Pastor and, and the eldership for their ongoing courage in taking the risk of inviting me again and again. And if, you, if this is your first experience in hearing me, uh, then make, let me make it abundantly clear that the views and the opinions that you're about to hear are not necessarily those of the management. So that is my disclaimer. Uh, Always enjoy having the opportunity to speak to you as a congregation. Um, It's a bonus, uh, but I think so even more than that is the time that I had yesterday harassing the men uh, at the men's breakfast. And and, uh, also the personal time that uh, Pastor Bill and I have is of great value to me. And he's driving me back to New Jersey this afternoon, so be praying for us. Uh, We got lost in New Jersey on Friday. And too much Sprite. (laughs) It's really, really overrated, I can tell you that. But at any rate, again, thank you for your open hearts, uh, for your embrace. I, um, I always enjoy the worship here. This has to be one of the most exciting Episcopal churches that I have an opportunity uh, to visit. In our conversation over the last couple of days, uh, Pastor Bill asked me if I would talk to you about the beginner's mind. Or maybe we could uh, frame it another way and talk to you about sustaining curiosity. And so the text that I've chosen is familiar to, I'm sure, most all of you. It's almost worn smooth with familiarity. It's been read so many times. But I want to invite you, if you will, to turn with me to the gospel according to John And I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 11. This is the encounter that Jesus has with Nicodemus. I know you know it all too well, but let's allow ourselves to be open to seeing something maybe that we might have possibly missed before. I think many of you would agree with me. I mean, I have Bibles now that have been underlined and highlighted, and I've written so many notes in the margin until they're not hardly legible anymore. And I go back to these passages again and again, and quite often find that God takes these gems and he turns them just a bit, and they refract something that I had not seen before. How could I have missed that. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's certainly true, isn't it? That truth is timeless, that truth is forever, not necessarily in its essence, but for us is evolving. So, John chapter 3, beginning with verse 1, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus a ruler of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? 
Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I've said this to you. You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. So, let's explore this idea of sustaining, maintaining spiritual curiosity. I'm an advocate of this idea that it's not the things that we don't know that give us trouble as much as it is the things that we're certain of that just aren't so. And what we have described to us in this very poignant moment, this encounter between Jesus and Nicodemus, a man who was highly respected, he was a part of the academic community, the intelligentsia of his time. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. This would be the equivalent of the first century Supreme Court. These are the ones that make certain adjudications about things and their veracity, whether they're true or not. Now, many people have given, I think, Nicodemus... um, a bad rap in as much as that they point out that he came at night. He came under the cover of darkness. The assumption is that he came late at night so that he would not be seen. It was a very stealthy kind of encounter. Um, I'm not sure that's entirely true. I think many of us need to realize that even though this happened in the evening, sometime after the sun goes down, that maybe what is being portrayed to us and what is being said to us, that many of us are living in a certain darkness that we are unconscious of. I think ignorance is probably our biggest secret, and if we are unwilling to ask the hard questions because we're afraid of the answers, we will remain in ignorance. Are you with me so far? So, his reputation preceded him, and uh, this comes in the wake of what is described in chapter 2 of the cleansing of the temple. So, there had been a great disruption and interruption Uh, seismic activity almost that had emanated from the epicenter of the temple out through the city. And there were rumors about Jesus. And so Nicodemus goes to see for himself. Now, before I go any further, I think there's an old antidote I'm going to share with you that fits very nicely here as it relates to maintaining spiritual uh, curiosity and forever going after the beginner's mind. Because I can tell you that after over four decades of doing what I'm doing right now, and some of you have heard me say this in previous visits, I have more questions now than I've ever had in all my life. I'm actually learning to get excited when I discover that I've been wrong about certain things because that means I'm still learning. Uh, Let me me put your nerves at ease here and uh, suggest this to you because I have a reputation in the circles that I travel in of um, sometimes leaving people in a cloud of ambiguity. And, um, you know, they wonder, what was it he was talking about? And so to try to uh, calm people, I, I, I suggest this to them by, first of all, asking how many of you right at this very moment ardently believe certain things that at one time you didn't believe? Okay. Uh, apparently, some of you did not understand the question. I'll pose it again. How many of you at this very moment, you passionately and ardently believe certain things that at one time you didn't believe? 
Okay, if that is true, is it possible that what you had known previous to this time was not inaccurate but simply incomplete? Is it possible in the journey that you're on right now that you'll continue to discover that? What you have known is not necessarily inaccurate, but it's very possibly incomplete. I've heard people all my life, and I'm not questioning the legitimacy of their conversion when they describe their conversion in this way, with this language. They talk about the day that they invited Jesus into their life. Hmm, interesting. Is it possible that it's the other way around, that you didn't invite him into your life, but he invited you into his? It is not us that chose him, he chose us. So, what we have going on here is, it, it, it is a poignant moment to say the least. There's a lot of tension. Maybe you didn't feel that when you read it. Uh, but before we move on, there's this antidote that I wanted to share with you. You've got to listen very closely to it so that you get the full import of it. And uh, it's about a mystic and evangelical pastor and a fundamentalist preacher that all die on the same day, and they awake to find themselves at the pearly gates. Upon reaching the gates, they're promptly greeted by Peter, who informs them that before entering into heaven, that they will be interviewed by Jesus concerning the state of their doctrine. The first one who is called is the mystic, who quietly is ushered into the room. Five hours later, the mystic reappears with a smile and says, I thought I'd had it all wrong. Then Peter signals for the evangelical, this is getting better, who stands up and he enters into the room after a full day has passed. After a full day has passed, the evangelical pastor reappears with a frown and says to him, how, says, how could have I been so foolish? Then it's the fundamentalist pastor's turn. And he follows Peter into the room. The fundamentalist pastor picks up his well-worn Bible, and he walks into the room, and a few days pass with no sign of the preacher. Then finally the door swings open, and Jesus himself appears and says, how could I have gotten it all wrong? There's an old saying that you may be familiar with in the rabbinical community that goes like this, that between two rabbis, there's at least three opinions. <laughs> a little over a year ago, I heard a podcast, um, a very respected rabbi from a prestigious rabbinical school in Manhattan was being interviewed by a Protestant. And uh, he said, you know, there are obviously a lot of glaring differences between Orthodox Jewish people and you Protestants, he said, but one in particular is, is that you guys don't really know how to argue very well. He said, usually in the process of argumentation, you become very polarized. You know, you're, you're so egocentric until it's more about defending your beliefs than it is getting to the truth, which is, the truth really is not a body of information, but the truth is a person. Would you agree with that? He said, and, and this was what was astounding to me, and it still is fascinating. He, he said, whenever two rabbis are engaged in a heated exchange, he said, we actually consider it to be an act of worship. I thought, wait a minute. I mean, that doesn't fit my paradigm for worship. And so the interviewer asked him, said, how so? He said, because this reflects that both of us are expressing and demonstrating a degree of intelligent humility and recognizing that we don't have all the answers, but we're in pursuit of the answers. Makes so much sense to me. 
Evolving is really important. Everything, listen, everything and everyone who is still alive is still evolving, continuing to evolve. Being alive is a privilege of constantly changing. To be perfect means that you have changed often. You see, healthy things grow, and growing things change, and changing things challenge us. There certainly is a security that we are always after in things remaining the same, forgetting that faith and predictability cannot coexist. I have been convicted, and maybe you have as well, at how many times I've tried to manage my expectations of God and found myself severely disappointed and didn't realize that the disappointment that I was experiencing was not something that God had done to me, that I, but I had done to myself. You see, whatever you focus on will always determine what you miss. Yeah. And so here is a misunderstanding that I'm sure has probably been addressed here before, but I think it bears repeating in this whole encounter, in the exchange that takes place. Two typical rabbis wired this way, and they're back and forth with questions, which, by the way, When it comes to questions, I think that there's a certain sacredness to questioning everything. Uh, David Dark wrote a beautiful book entitled The Sacredness of Questioning Everything. And um, somewhere in the book, and I may not have this verbatim, but he said something to the effect, he said, I'm suspicious of any God that is sensitive and defensive whenever he is questioned. I'm suspicious of him. Uh, I I don't know whether you've realized in in, in reading through the Gospels and all the questions that were posed to Jesus, which most of them he responded with questions. Have you noticed that? Um, I don't know whether you've ever noticed, but it seems that Jesus... uh, magnetically drew people that were filled with curiosity. Uh, they, they knew that they wouldn't be dismissed. They, they knew that they would not be labeled as doubters. And so they're, they're just drawn to him in this process. And so Jesus says to Nicodemus, we're not going to exegete this entire conversation But Jesus says something to him, as I was about to say when you interrupted me a moment ago. He said to him, he says, you need to be born again. Now, when we hear that terminology, especially in evangelical Christianity, what does that imply? Because, you know, this is one of the go-to, this is a staple passage of Scripture whenever we're trying to engage someone who is a pre-believer. i I prefer to call them pre-believers rather than unbelievers because I've found more unbelief among believers than I have found among supposed unbelievers. Did you get that? Truth is, is that many of them are just more honest than we are. And so usually, though, this is the card that we play, John 3. You know, Jesus said, you must be born again, and you need to be born again. And I'm not being cynical or critical of that, but you do realize who Jesus is talking to. He's not talking to an unbeliever. And you do realize also that everything that we read in the Gospels, up until Jesus says, it is finished, and he gives up his spirit, commends his spirit back into the hands of the Father, that even though it's positioned in the New Testament, still under the auspices of the Old Testament. And so Jesus is actually saying to this believer that he needed to be born again. 
Now, how does that relate to what I announced to you I wanted to talk to you about, the beginner's mind or maintaining spiritual curiosity? I think, first of all, it's an understanding something that is as far as the East is from the West in terms of the Western mind and the Eastern mind. Because in, in, in the Orthodox Jewish community, a father or a mother would never ask their child when they come home from school, what did you learn today? They always ask them, did you ask good questions? Interesting, isn't it? It's a totally different learning model. What I'm suggesting to you, if you're, if, if you're waiting uh, for me to make a point... <laughs> What I'm suggesting to you is our weekly gatherings around the Scripture and listening to whoever is, has the responsibility or the assignment of communicating truth. If we come in and all we are hearing are things that continue to affirm what we already know, I wonder if we're really experiencing the teacher. Most churches will gather. That's the reason why they have certain labels or certain distinctions. They are Presbyterian. They are Methodist. They are Catholic. They are Baptist. They are Charismatic or whatever. All those labels do, as far as I'm concerned, is identified where they stopped in their pursuit of understanding. I don't mean for that to have a critical tone to it. But most of those who will gather on Sunday, they, with Bible in hand, the same book that you have this morning, they come to reaffirm what they already know. When in reality, what should happen is when you leave here in a while and you go out to your car, your mind should be wrestling with questions. Now, I'm, I'm going to make a further case for this if you, if you have grace to receive it. You see, I, I think the reason, all of us need to experience this ongoing birthing that takes place. Uh, because a child, the unique thing about a child is when they arrive, their brain is shaped like a question mark. And then systematically, we drive that out of them. Why is that Jesus is always seemingly using little children to make his point? It was, it's not just because of the innocence, but I think it's because of the insatiable curiosity that they have. Our world is populated with domesticated grown-ups They'd rather settle for the safe, predictable answers. Am I talking to anybody here today instead of the wild, unpredictable mystery? Faith that's been reduced to a comfortable system of beliefs about God instead of an uncomfortable encounter with God. Excuse me for my passion. But curiosity's risky, isn't it? You know, we, we've got to come to terms with this and understand there are no wrong questions. When people are hungry for God, every question is right. One man said that curiosity is probably an unknown fruit of the Spirit. <laughs> I've already said this, but curiosity just seems to be welcome in the presence of Jesus when it's not welcomed anywhere else. You know, just in the last few years, I have become, been becoming more and more acquainted with the early church fathers. How could I have missed this? You know, works like the cloud of unknowing. Well, that's an ambiguous title, isn't it? The cloud of unknowing. But the ancient, you know, the early church fathers, they were used to talking freely about unknowing. It was their contention that the end of knowledge had much to teach us. Now, I, I'm very much aware of my audience here. I know how well you're taught. I know also that there has been, and I'm, you know, I see value in it, that you're a very cerebral bunch too. 
<laughs> but, you know, if there's anything I've discovered that I know unequivocally to be true is that God seems to take great joy in continually offending my mind so that he can reach my heart. Because I think, I think at the end of the day, I think at the end of the day in our spiritual journey with him, we have to make a choice. And the choice is whether I want a mind that makes sense or a heart that makes love. Is this okay? It's all I got right now, so I'll just keep talking until I say something. You see, those that were closest to the resurrected Lord, the desert fathers and mothers, these are the people, think about this, these are the people, they didn't have volumes of commentaries. They weren't even as acquainted uh, and adept in the original languages as many of the scholars are today. In fact, many of them, they were dubbed the desert fathers and mothers is because they realized the confining and the constricting systemization of theology that was going on not long after the age of the apostles. Did that make any sense to you? And so they left it. They left the system. They saw what was happening. They became, they began to live, you know, monastic lifestyles because the element of mysticism had been taking, taken out of it. I've said this here before, but I will say it again. Anytime mystery is taken out of a relationship, the relationship is doomed to die. This coming July, my wife and I will celebrate 41 years together. I I didn't thank you. I didn't thank you. She really needed that applause, not me. But I, if I've said anything with sincerity, this is the most sincere thing I could say to you. I'm still mystified by this woman. See, I'm not just talking about her, but I'm talking about my relationship with him. It's knowing that as they did, they believed that we could learn as much about God in what we don't know as in what we do know. You know, let me, uh, let me address some of the assumptions that we have about questions that I, you know, I'm stating the obvious, and I, I do have an amazing grasp for the obvious, so uh, that was a joke. <clears throat> Questions can really be embarrassing, can't they? I mean, according to this particular assumption, it's embarrassing to admit admit you don't know something. What's important is to never reveal your ignorance. I mean, we were talking about this the other day. Uh, We have benefited, Bill and I, as uh, among many of my colleagues, we have, we've benefited a great deal from the, the men and women that have committed, devoted their entire lives to, to understanding the original languages and the culture and, and the history and uh, to unravel truths for us. But, you know, sometimes I even think that's a little pretentious because uh, they assume to know what Paul meant in everything that he wrote. And it's clear to me that Paul didn't fully understand everything that he wrote. <laughs> A great writing coach that I follow, his name is Stephen Pressfield. Uh, I, I, this past week he wrote a blog. He said, write about what you don't know about. I thought, what? <laughs> Excuse me? You know? So there is, you know, this, there is this first assumption, you know, about questions because uh, we fear emba- embarrassment. Don't, know, don't admit you, you don't know something because others may think less of you. 
I know that one. I labored under that for a lot of years until I got to the point where I realized that I don't have any need anymore to convince anybody or to impress anybody. Yeah, that's freeing somebody up over here. I'll, I'll talk to this side of the room. <laughs> Questions. You know, we'd rather silence our doubts and ignore our questions. Don't do anything to cause people to think less of us. I, I, <laughs> I, I'm in agreement with what one great thinker said. He said, over-explanation ex- over always robs us of astonishment. Or as uh, Flannery O'Connor said, mystery is the greatest embarrassment to the modern mind. Next assumption. Is this okay so far? You, maybe you'll get born again before you leave. <laughs> Questions make people really, really uncomfortable, don't they? Because questions will probably lead to other questions. <laughs> our doubts might resonate with other doubts. Because our questions... Others might have to face questions that they've learned to ignore. This ought to be the safest place in the world for that kind of thing. Right Right here. Another assumption. Questions are obviously very, very dangerous, aren't they? Because many in our culture have opted to stay safe in this limiting knowledge to what they already know. It's a self-induced retirement of the mind. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) It really is. Uh, Do you, you know, uh, do you remember, you know, Jesus was constantly confronted with questions, but remember when the lawyer came to him asking about the greatest commandment? Remember that, that exchange? Do you also remember that Luke is clear to say that he asked these questions really not because he was wanting to answer, but because he wanted to justify himself. So really, the only kind of honest question is a question that doesn't already have a preconceived answer. Now, don't look at me like that. You, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? That there are people that, that ask you certain questions, and you, you, you know as soon as it's coming out of their mouth, they already have a prepared answer, and what they want you to do is justify what they already know. Interesting, isn't it? This egoic operating system that we all have uh, that is extremely defensive, you know, Remember I told you earlier that, that God is consistently offending the mind that he can reach our hearts. And usually when the offense happens, notice how when you get really defensive. You know what that's saying to you? It's saying to you you're probably not entirely sure about what you say you believe. Otherwise, why would you get defensive? Jesus had to be killed because he had to be silenced. And the reason why he had to be silenced is because he was raising too many questions. Another assumption. Questions can be right or wrong. All of us have had the experience of asking a question only be told that that question is inappropriate or irrelevant or wrong. That's, again, what I love about children. It just comes out. My, my grandchildren, you know, they are incessant at, at question-asking machines. And I used to get really frustrated. I mean, at first it was challenging because I'm thinking whenever they're asking me, you know, these profound questions because, after all, they are my grandchildren. <laughs> and as they're talking, I mean, my wheels are spinning because I'm, I'm, I'm thinking I've got to transliterate you know, this lofty concept into language that they can understand. You ever had that challenge? 
And uh, when, I, when, I feel, when I felt like I would pull it off successfully, quite honestly, I was even more frustrated because it's, as soon as I gave them this eloquent answer, they followed it with another. It, it dawned on me that really what they wanted was not information. They wanted engagement. They wanted connection with me. I, I do want you to understand I'm not just talking about the dynamic that exists between my grandchildren and me, but I want you to understand that dynamic that exists between you and God. I mean, this is an unprecedented and revolutionary idea in the early pages of Scripture back in Genesis when we're introduced to this idea wherever God begins to interact in a discussion with a man. Because prior to that, you know, the, the belief system was that God spoke to humans, but he didn't converse with them. And so when Abram comes along in the narrative of his life, you have the conversation that's taking place. You, do you realize how revolutionary that was? So, we do know this whole thing of how inappropriate or seemingly irrelevant or wrong certain questions are because it may reveal a lack of faith or a refusal to believe. I really believe that's one of the reasons why, uh, and, and I, I don't mean to meddle here, I, I think this is one of the reasons why that there is such an attrition rate among the millennials and those younger that are leaving the conventional church. Because they have an aversion for dogmatism. (laughs) They are open to engagement and to thinking and to questioning but when you come, I mean, everything about the way we, and I'm not, I'm not critiquing, uh, you know, your, your decor here, but everything about the way we do things, okay, to them smacks of authoritarianism and dogmatism that says, okay, he's up there, he's in an elevated position, not just so that he can be seen, but because he's right, if we're going to in, in, engage a thinking invol, evolving, I'm not telling you to change all this after I leave, as if you would. I'm trying to make a point here. You know, I do understand men will crucify you, not for what you say, but for what they thought you said. Okay? Are we all right? Now I'm down here, and it's going to get problematic. As long as I was up there, I was all right. <clears throat> So I'm, I'm not trying to get, you know, too much involved and embroiled in, you know, some of those things right now that are socially sensitive. But, I, you know, for me, now in my 60s, it, it's been a wake-up call. It's helped me to understand of how I'm being perceived. Very few of us are really fully self-aware. We think, you know, we, we think we're being perceived a certain way. And in reality, we're not. You're not who you think you are. You're not who other people think you are, but you think you are. (laughs) James would say that wisdom is easily entreated. Wisdom is easily entreated. So remember what Jesus said to this man when he tells him, You need to be born again. And he uses these ethereal examples. I personally believe, as I mentioned yesterday, at the men's breakfast, uh, I think because Jesus was a master of teaching with those things that were hidden literally in plain sight. He was so organic in his methods and his metaphors. I I think there, there just might have been in this night conversation a gust of wind. And Jesus said, the wind blows where it wills. <laughs> what? You know, of course, the wind always is a metaphor, it seems, that's associated with, with the Holy Spirit. And uh, we understand the, uh, our inability to predict 
which direction it's going. You know, holy men of old wrote as they were moved upon, moved upon by the Holy Spirit, Paul would say in Timothy. And this is such a rich example that he uses there because he said, you know, this is the means by which inspiration comes. Holy men of old wrote as they were moved upon by the Holy Spirit. And so he uses this this rich imagery that they were all too familiar with in that ancient world that to get into a vessel and to navigate across, you know, large bodies of water, uh, you know, if you didn't have the manpower of those beneath the deck rowing, then the only way to get from point A to point B was to wait upon the wind and then open your sails and navigate accordingly. What is, is that making sense to you? You see, this is, I think this is really how inspiration comes. I think this is, how, this is how we have to become so sensitive and discerning to the many winds, that the different ways in which God begins to breathe upon our lives and this is what causes us to navigate our way through the questions and understanding that the questions are always more important than the answers. Does that make sense to you? It's almost over. You're going to be okay. <clears throat> There's a certain vulnerability here that, that is going on with Nicodemus. And he asked him, he said, you have a reputation of a teacher. You don't know these things? Yeah. See, when I read that, I am not just reading about a man 2,000 years ago that had a reputation and a resume. When I read that, I insert myself into that encounter. And as a result, it causes me to ask every day for the beginner's mind. Restore unto me wonderment. Somehow, let me experience a degree of intelligent humility that causes me to realize that curiosity and imagination is far more important than any of my education. And the more I learn, it causes me to realize what I don't know and to embrace that because I think that's what faith looks like. I told the men yesterday, I quoted the words of Philip Yancey. He said, you know what? Faith is trusting that what doesn't make sense now will in reverse. The mind, though, the way that most of us are wired, we have this insatiable need to know. And most of the time, if God were to give you clear and definitive answers to what you are demanding, it really would not create faith in you. It would create doubt. As counterintuitive as that sounds, as paradoxical as that sounds. I mean, you, <clears throat> you remember this Old Testament character, Habakkuk. You remember him? I love, I remember years ago when I was studying and, and teaching this, this little minor prophet, you know, this little book, this little short book, verse by verse by verse. And, you know, first of all, I wanted to find out a little bit about this guy. And I realized that his parents, they probably, they probably recognized something in him. Maybe there was something about his conception or his birth that caused them to give him this name, Habakkuk which means to wrestle. And I think it probably was a self-fulfilling prophecy because when he writes, he begins in Habakkuk, Habakkuk 1, he's wrestling. He's wrestling with injustice and inequity. He's talking about why is it that your people are struggling and those who are evil are prospering. You remember that? Yeah, yeah, I'm sure you've been in Habakkuk recently. I'm sure. But what I'm getting at there is finally, you know, the Lord's letting him vent. 
And finally, you know what happens? God interrupts him. He says, wait a minute. He says, you know, if I explain to you what I'm, and I'm just, you know, giving you my translation of it, and it's really not tampering with the text. He said, if I really explained to you what was going on, you wouldn't believe anyway. What are you demanding right now that he make clear to you? We walk by faith and not by sight. We know that. We say that so much and so glibly. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Right? And then Paul would say in another place that we look not to the things which are seen, but to the things which are unseen. For the things which are seen are temporal or constantly changing, but the things which are unseen are eternal. You know what my takeaway is from those two passages of Scripture that there seems to be some tension between? We walk by faith and not by sight, and we look not to those things which are seen. How, how do I harmonize all that? Because there's sometimes when I'm totally deaf, and faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word, there's sometimes when I'm totally deaf, and when I'm totally deaf to spiritual things, God's trying to teach me how to see. And when I'm totally blind, He's teaching me, trying to teach me how to hear. Does that make sense to you? So, I invite you here this morning uh, to join me uh, in this uh, engagement of saying, Lord, I want a beginner's mind. I, I, I am willing to embrace mystery. I, I realize that mystery is probably one of the greatest gifts that you've ever given me because if I didn't have mystery in my life, then I'd probably die of boredom. It is the antidote to the monotonous and the mundane mystery. It's what keeps you searching. The scripture says, blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. But the Bible also says, I think it's in the Proverbs, says even the the full soul, the soul that is full, loathes even the honeycomb. What does that mean? What does that mean? It means that we can get so full of what we, we have decided that we are certain about that we don't, even have, we don't even have a taste anymore for the sweetest of things. Does that make sense to you? Somewhat of a conundrum, isn't it? But it's, it is true. It's true. Go ahead and stand with me. <clears throat> Now, I'll pray this in an intercessory role for you if you're willing to receive it and accept it. And we ask here before you very humbly this morning because we understand that humility is something, Lord, that we are unable to consciously achieve We understand that it is an amazing virtue, but it really is about our admission of our humanity. And we very humbly acknowledge that there are certain things, Lord, that we have been persistent in wanting clarity and resolve over, and we just let it go right now. I let it go. Restore unto me, as the poet said, the joy of my salvation. Because many of you know you have faint, fading memories of that. And way back there, you didn't even know whether Jesus was shot or crucified. You just knew he died. You had joy, though. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Restore unto me the innocence. Restore unto me the curiosity. Restore unto me, Lord, uh, 
this innocence. I ask that I would be born again this morning. And that when I walk out of this building and I step over the threshold of this house, out into the, the openness of the heavens above me, that I realize that your ways are past finding out. And all I want to do is commit to you that I'm going to remain in pursuit. I'm not satisfied. I will not be satisfied. We ask for that this morning. We ask for that. Lord, you love these sons and daughters of yours. And uh, your love is so expansive and has no need to answer every one of our questions. So much so that you allow us to believe a lie about you and not try to convince us otherwise. That must be what unconditional love is at its very essence. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for questioning my answers and keeping me on this spiritual search. Amen. Amen. Pastor, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle Podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.